Hey everybody, this is Pastor Chad. It is Sunday, May 21st, 2023. Welcome to the Way Radio Podcast. Uh, what I'm doing today is actually replaying a message from three years ago entitled Responses to the Gospel. And uh, it's one of my uh, favorite messages as I've been going through and organizing some of my previous sermons. I came across this one, and it's just something that's so relevant for the times in which we live that I wanted to go ahead and replay it. So I hope it's a blessing. So the title of the sermon today is Responses to the Gospel. And I've mentioned this before. I know it sounds simplistic, but the gospel really is the solution to the world's problems. I was just speaking with a pastor friend of mine that I had lunch with a few days ago, and, and we were talking about counseling people. And we both talked about the fact that it often seems simplistic, but really everything people struggle with can be addressed and dealt with and remedied. The solution is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it seems that has been so neglected for so long that even a lot of the church uh, doesn't realize that. But really, the question I want to ask is, what responses should we expect as we share and engage in the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, this is something very important for us, I think, to consider, especially during the times in which we're living right now. Uh, it's it's It can be overwhelming. I feel bad for people that still uh, turn on mainstream news and believe what they're told. Um, it would have to be horrifying to actually think that that the news that the mainstream media putting out is actually all true, because it's become clear that uh, most of it is no longer uh, to be trusted. And the reason I say that is um, negativity and chaos and insanity weighs people down, and that's what that's what's the world is tending to do to a lot of people. But when you really look at what's happening and you look at it from a Christian perspective, you can step back and say, no, this is just human nature being acted out very uh, blatantly in a lot of different ways right now. And the way for us to deal with that as Christians is to be in the gospel message, to be proclaiming the gospel message. But we got to understand that the gospel message is responded to in different ways by different people. And I think that's something that's very important for us to consider, like I said, especially during the times in which we're living. How will the gospel message be accepted by people? Sharing the gospel without compromise can obviously lead to winning souls for the kingdom. That's the reason that we share the gospel, to lead souls, uh, to win souls for the kingdom of Christ and for the edification of the saints. Like I've said before, the gospel message is not just to be used to, to win people to Christ, to bring people into the church. We are to preach the gospel to ourselves and to constantly be preaching the gospel to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to being fed on the gospel message. It's what sustains us and what strengthens us. And the gospel message is found in Genesis all the way to Revelation. But the gospel message can also lead to confrontation, to rejection, to abuse, and to persecution. And these are just truths that we have to understand if we are going to engage in Christian ministry. And like I've said before, every Christian believer is engaged in Christian ministry in different and varying ways. If you take our ministry as an example, my son and I are going to Kenya to serve in the cause of the gospel. We can't do that without the help and the support and the prayers of those that stand behind us and make these trips come about. I've used the analogy before. It's like often when you go into the to the mission field like we're doing, it could be like going into a dark well, but you need somebody to hold the rope. So we're all serving the same cause in different ways. But you have to understand when you present the gospel of Jesus Christ, there will be different responses to it. And if we don't look at that biblically and we don't try to see things through a Christ-like perspective, we will very we could very quickly become defeatist and think that we're not serving any purpose that's getting anywhere and fail in the endeavors that we're undertaking for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ and this is why i said i really want to get this message across to everybody listening to this and also it's something i'm really going to talk about a lot on this trip to kenya because like I've said before, one of the biggest exports from America right now is false teachings and places like Kenya are being inundated 
through prosperity gospel, the Bethel movement, NAR. And the only way to push back against those things is the uncompromised proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what our churches there strive to do. So we really have to be praying for them. So the proclamation of the gospel can win souls for the kingdom, obviously, for the edification of the saints, but it can also lead to confrontation, to rejection, to abuse, and to persecution. From who? From wayward family members. We've all heard the stories of a family member who's an unbeliever or a family member who is uh, trapped in a false religion, and you try to share the gospel with them, and it tears the family apart. That family member wants nothing to do with this. We see that a lot in the area in which we live because Mormonism is the probably the most prevalent false teaching here. And I've come across so many people whose families have rejected them because they have come to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they've been removed from their families because of that. From those of us who, from those who treat us poorly, who hate Christianity in the world, they hate the message of the gospel. So they will attack the messenger bringing that message of the gospel. Will be confronted, rejected, abused, and persecuted from those entrenched in the modern in modern day tolerance of sin. This is what we see so much with these so-called protests that are nothing more than riots. Those people want nothing to do with truth. Quite often, if you try to bring the gospel message to people like that, they will do nothing but ridicule you, ridicule you, and fight back against what you're saying. Not all, but many. It's a common response to the gospel message. And those responses will also be received by us from a vast majority of the modern Christian church. Because it's not grounded in the word of God. It's not grounded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's been compromised for so long that when you bring that true gospel, a vast majority of the modern Christian church doesn't even want to hear it. So they will lash out against it. So how do we approach the depravity of our society and those reveling in that depravity? That's really what we see on such a large scale right now. How much should we talk? And this is a very important question for Christians to consider. How much should we tolerate when the gospel message that we bring and we ourselves are rejected and scorned? When is it okay to say enough is enough and to move on to the next person that you're going to share the gospel with? These are very important questions for us to consider. Let's look at Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Do not think that I have, this is Christ speaking. Do not think that I have come to bring, uh, let me put the verse up here for you guys. Sorry. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I just got a message from my sister that the, the screen for them went black. Um, if that's happening, please let me know. It appears everybody else is seeing everything okay. So hopefully they'll be able uh, to log in again. So whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, what I want you to think about here, these are hard truths for us to understand that the Lord is presenting us with. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What we have to understand is true, genuine love is only in and through Jesus Christ. So if you're going to truly love someone, you will love them through Jesus Christ and strive to love them in the way that Jesus Christ does. But he is always our supreme relationship. Christ comes first in everything, and everything else is subordinate to him. Very important for us to understand. I guess it's been fixed. I just got another message. True life is in and through Christ. So where he says, if you give up your life, if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. You're not really losing anything because you're actually finding the only true life that there is in Jesus Christ. 
So it's important to understand these truths that he's giving us. Now let's consider this. Jesus shared the gospel with conviction and without compromise. We see that, especially if you read through the book of John. He never cut corners. He never changed the gospel message according to whatever crowd he was speaking to. The gospel was the gospel. Very important for us to learn that. So Jesus shared the gospel with conviction, and he shared it without compromise. And many followed him. But was Jesus always accepted? Did everybody always respond to his message in a positive way? No. We see constant attacks against him. He wasn't always accepted. He was often rejected. He was constantly scorned. And he was persecuted to his death. That was what the proclamation of the gospel led to in Christ's life during his incarnation. This is, this is one of the most fascinating portions of Scripture for me from the book of John. And I really want you to, to pay attention to this because it's fascinating to see the response to the gospel. And what I'm trying to do in the sermon is to show uh, what responses we can expect to the gospel message as we proclaim it throughout our lives, understanding that obviously the goal and the hope is that when we, when we, when we share the gospel with a, a lost sinner dead in their sins and trespasses, that the Holy Spirit will transform them and they'll respond to the gospel and they'll become a believer and they'll start following Christ and we can disciple them up. But if that's what we're hoping will happen in every instance, like I said, we're going to become, we're going to feel defeated very quickly. It's like I've shared with people, especially in the age in which we live, Christianity is a low percentage game because we're surrounded by so much evil. And the modern church, like I've said, probably 90% of it is not saved. And probably 80 to 90% of the pastors nowadays aren't even saved, don't even understand the gospel. So we're dealing with a low percentage. But that's okay if you understand how to expect people to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and understand that God brings people to believe, not us. The worst, I think the worst thing you can do is go out and share the gospel and then try to coerce someone into making a decision for Christ or reciting a sinner's prayer. The Holy Spirit moves on someone and the gospel touches their heart and they, and the Lord is drawing them to him to begin following him. There's nothing we can do to stop it. They will be asking us, what must I do to be saved? You see, that's how we have to hope that the gospel affects someone. But we got to understand if it doesn't, that is to be expected as well. In Jesus's ministry, we see him healing. We see him working miracles. He walks on water. We see him feeding thousands miraculously. He raises the dead. Just think about what it must have been like to witness, his G, to witness Jesus's ministry and miracles firsthand. Just think about his apostles that walked with him. And then think about, like I said, if you read through the book of John, you hear about these thousands of people that followed him wherever they, they, he went because they've heard that he heals people. That he's talking about things in a way nobody has talked about them. He's bringing a fresh, new truth that the world had never understood clearly before, been presented with clearly before. And people are fascinated by him. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Think of the woman at the well and uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, Samaritan woman at the well, hearing the gospel and the fascinating transformation in her life. All the people that he affected, the amazing response. He fed thousands with a few fish and a few loaves because that's how many were following him out into the, into the wilderness to hear what he was talking about. And even when it seemed like there was nothing to give them, there was no food to provide. He showed that if you trust in him, there will always be more than enough. So he, he had this amazing ministry for three years and so many people were drawn to him and followed him. But this is where it gets really interesting, and there's such a lesson for us all in this. When he shares the gospel message, when Jesus really lays out the gospel message, and he teaches about himself being the true bread of life that comes down from heaven, that he is sent by God, that he is divine, that he is God incarnate, and he preaches on the doctrine of election, which is about God's sovereignty, 
that he is God and he is sovereign and that you can't come to God unless the Lord draws you to his son, what happened? Like I've said, this is one of the most fascinating teachings in scripture when you really engage in ministry because you still see it happening today. So I'm going to give you some examples of his ministry from John chapter 6. John 6, 35. Uh, I'll make this a little bigger for you guys. There we go. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's talking about communion with him. John 6.40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So he's talking about his divinity, his power, the message of the gospel through him. John 6.44-45, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they all will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. What he's talking about is no one can come to Christ unless God draws him through his Holy Spirit working in that person. God is the initiator of salvation in sinners. A sinner cannot come to Christ unless they're born again, unless they're born from the dead and raised again spiritually in Christ. They will begin to, they will believe in him and then follow him. John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 6, 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So his divinity is being proclaimed over and over again. John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. He's meaning that you can only be born again by the spirit. The works that you perform in your flesh will not help you to be saved. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. John 6, 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. And this is why I said earlier, it's dangerous to try to coerce someone into making a decision for Christ. Because if you have to coerce someone to do so and try to talk them into it, because that's just your goal, I need decisions for Christ, chances are they have no idea who Christ is. But if someone is granted by the Father to come to Christ, you will not be able to stop it even if you tried. So Jesus in the book of John 6, in John 6, Chapter, in John chapter 6, he lays out all these truths about God's sovereignty, about the fact that only that those who God has chosen will come to the Son. These are biblical truths that cannot be refuted. Very important to understand. So now how did these crowds who had followed him and witnessed so many miracles and seen so many amazing works and heard such uh, just amazing teachings of truth from him, how did they respond when he started preaching this uncompromised gospel message? The next verse, John 6, 66, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Isn't that fascinating? That he preaches how we are saved, how the Holy Spirit works, that he is divine, that he is the true bread of life. Teachings that absolutely <coughs> encourage and sustain Christian believers. But when he preached this, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Why would that be? But folks, this has been a response to the uncompromised gospel message since the beginning. Notice that, it, that it was his disciples who turned back and no longer walked with him. Isn't that fascinating? Folks, that's exactly what we see so often today. I have so, I've, probably the, the greatest attacks that I have faced being in ministry for all these years is when you start preaching about the doctrines of predestination, election, which all have to do with God's sovereignty. The majority of Christians don't want to hear that. 
Like, no, I make a decision for God. Christ died for everyone. They don't want to accept these things. What are they doing when they say that? They're doing exactly what these people did in John 6, 66. They are turning and no longer wanting to walk with Christ. Because if you don't walk with him completely and you don't accept every truth of him, you're not walking with him at all. So this response wasn't just this one time when Jesus taught this. It has been this response. This is one of the responses to the gospel that has been in place and been happening since that time. So important to understand that. So that was while Christ was preaching. That's while he was engaged in ministry. So now let's move ahead a couple of years. His ministry was only about three or so years long. And let's look at the final response to Jesus's ministry. We see that many didn't want to hear the true gospel message. So they, they turned away and no longer walked with him because they couldn't accept it. Only those that the father were bringing to Christ, stayed with him, who were blessed by grace. But let's move forward a few years at the end of Jesus's ministry and see what the final response was to his ministry. If we look at Matthew 27, 39 through 44, it says, And those who passed by derided him. He is hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of his children, of those he have chosen. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. But I want you to really look at the part that I've underlined there. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. What is that an example of? What does that show us? That is belief based on man's conditions. They're saying, if he comes down from the cross and he saves himself, then we'll believe in him. Raising the dead, miracles, feeding the thousands, all the things he preached, that wouldn't that wasn't enough. But if he can come down from the cross and save himself, then we'll believe in him. So these Christian, the, the, these Jewish leaders are these priests are putting their conditions on what it will take for them to believe in Christ. If he comes down from the cross, that's what that's what we need to see in order for us to believe in him. And folks, that response has also been the response to Jesus, the Messiah, since the beginning. That is another way that people respond to him. One of the biggest problems in the modern church is the obsession with creating a Jesus according to the requirements and the standards of man in order for man to grant him belief. If this is who Jesus is, then I will believe in him. Does that sound extreme? Folks, we see that all the time. Turn on the TV and watch people like Joel Olstein and Rick Warren, Joyce Myers and Paula White and all these other false teachers. And what are they doing? They're creating a Jesus that they can accept. That, that, that meets their standards, that meets their requirements, and those that listen to them. Because, see, those false teachers are where they are. The whole Bethel movement, the whole NAR movement, all those false teachers are where they are because why? Because people want to hear what they say, so they lift them up to those positions. The Bible says well, anybody they want their ears tickled, so they'll, they'll create teachers that will tickle their ears. And that's what we see happening. But really what's happening, they're doing the same thing that these priests did when they were walking in front of the cross. Let him come down, and then we'll believe in him. They're saying, we don't want the Christ that's in the Bible. We want a Christ that meets our requirements and our standards, and then we'll believe in him. So they're trying to recreate who Christ is. And again, this is nothing new. Like I said, it's been happening since the beginning. And again, it's like the conversation I had with my friend the other day. If we're going to accept who Christ is, 
if we're going to know who God is through Christ, we have to be willing to accept that maybe God isn't exactly who we thought or want him to be. You see? Now, when you walk with the Lord for a few years and you understand more of his doctrine and you understand more of the Christian message, the things that grate on you at the beginning, when you're coming out of your sins and trespasses, all of a sudden they start making sense. And you love him more and more because you realize the things that were offensive at the beginning are now more acceptable. Christ is who he is. He is who he has conveyed to us through the gospel message in God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot put your requirements and your conditions on him. And that is what the vast majority of the modern Christian church tries to do. Romans 9.20 says, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? We are his creation. We live and exist and have our being in him. We have no place, especially because we are in rebellion and sin, to place any conditions on God. But that's what we see that these priests did, and that's what we see that so many still do to this day. They want a Jesus that meets their conditions. Go talk to Christians that support things like abortion. That's exactly what they believe. No, my Jesus isn't against this, you see? Very important for us to understand. But as believers, if we're going... To stay focused on Christ, we're not going to be drawn aside by so much apostasy and so much darkness and so much chaos in the world. We must always remember Hebrews 12, 2. Um, uh, sorry, I missed a verse there earlier. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Always looking to Christ. These responses that I talk about to the gospel, this negativity that you may be flooded with when you proclaim the truth of the gospel message, has no power to affect you if you keep your eyes on Christ, the founder and perfecter of your faith. You will just move through life, shining in his light, loving as he loved, seeing as he sees, and caring as he cares, with a true heart for him. And the world will not be able to affect you, but you've got to keep your eyes focused on him. When we commit to taking up our cross and following in the narrow way of Jesus Christ, we will often be treated with contempt and hated as he often was. He tells us in John 15, 18. I missed another verse. Sorry, guys. Oh, I missed that one completely. I'm sorry. John 15, 18 says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. He told us before he went to the cross that the world will hate the message that we bring. You see, it's just the way it is. So we've seen those responses to Jesus's ministry. So now let's look at a couple other responses that are a little more in line with what we will face. He was the Messiah, so he received the most um, violent responses to the gospel message. Because he was the Messiah. What was the response to the gospel when it was proclaimed by his apostles after his, after his death, resurrection, and ascension? How did the apostles share the gospel? Was it always accepted? And how were they treated? So first, let's look at Peter. Peter shares the gospel right after Pentecost or on Pentecost. He shares this amazing gospel sermon trying to wake people up to who Christ was, this is the response. After he shares the gospel, it says in Acts 27, uh, 2, 37 through 41, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. 
So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So we see this beautiful response to Peter's preaching of the gospel. 3,000 people were added to the church in that response. Awesome. That's the response we want to the gospel message, is what Peter experienced there. Now let's look at Acts 7, 54 through 60 and see what the response was shortly after when Stephen shared the gospel. Stephen preaches this gospel message, and it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. <laughs> Excuse me. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. So now Stephen shares the gospel, and they rush at him in hatred. What are you saying? So we see this violent response to the gospel. They stoned Stephen and killed him. And who's there approving of it? A young man named Saul. Who was Saul to become? Paul the apostle. So we see a violent response to the gospel. So let's move forward a few years, and Paul is talking about his ministry of preaching the uncompromised gospel of Jesus Christ for years, and let's see what the response was in his life after preaching the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 11, 24-28, Paul writes, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Try to get Paul to accept one of these modern prosperity gospel messages at the end of his ministry when he's scarred, he's probably crippled, and he's been pummeled by the world for years for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what's his greatest concern? Above all the things I've suffered, is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. That should be one of the greatest concerns that Christians have. I'll tell you for myself, as the president of the Way Ministry Church USA in Kenya, with, with all the locations we have in Kenya now, the thing that constantly is on my heart and on my mind is the condition of those churches, the concern for those churches. Are they staying on the narrow path? Are they staying grounded in the word of God? Are false teachers trying to destroy what we're trying to build there? That's what drives me back constantly to make sure that we are edifying and strengthening and helping those pastors so they can do the same for the congregations because the world is trying to inundate the true church with false teachings and draw away anybody that they can. So I understand very well that concern of Paul and we all should as Christians. So we've seen Paul, we've seen Stephen, we've seen Peter, we've seen the responses to their gospel. Peter, an amazing harvest. Peter ended up going and being killed for the gospel at the end of his life. Stephen was stoned. Paul was killed for the gospel. Now let's move closer to modern times, to the 1800s, and look at the great Christian George Mueller, who did amazing works for orphans and as one of the greatest modern examples we have of Christian faith. And let's look at one of the responses that he experienced when he proclaimed the gospel message very early in his ministry. Sorry, that one's not ready yet. 
George Mueller writes in his biography, it occurred to me that I should begin to labor among the, in his autobiography, it occurred to me that I should begin to labor among the Jews in London, whether I had the title of missionary or not. I distributed tracts among the Jews and invited them to come and talk to me about the things of God. I preached to them in the places where they gathered and read the scriptures regularly with about 50 Jewish boys. I had the honor of being reproached and ill-treated for the name of Jesus. The Lord gave me grace, however, and I was never kept from the work by any danger or the prospect of suffering. A couple great lessons from George Mueller. He wasn't real concerned about titles that people could give him. He didn't want to wait to go through some special seminary or some special school so he could be formally labeled a missionary. He wanted to just get on the missionary field. My all-time favorite pastor, Charles Spurgeon, the same way. When he was offered a free scholarship to go to Bible college, the Lord made it clear to him, you don't need commendations from men. You don't need letters after your name. Go preach the gospel. That is one of the biggest lessons I wish young Christians would learn. Because of the prevalence of apostasy in so much of the modern church, so many people are coming out of seminary with no understanding of Christian doctrine and totally filled with false teachings. If you have young men around you, they're your children, your grandchildren, young men you can influence and they feel like they're being led into the ministry, I would beg you to please counsel them, surround them with godly men that can disciple them up. Instead of spending three or four years listening to other people's opinions of what the Bible says, spend that time in the Bible, seeking the leading of the Holy Spirit, learning the truth of the gospel and the word of God. That would be such a strengthening effect on the modern church to have the, to go into ministry the way Spurgeon did and the way that George Mueller did and the way I did. Because then you're going in because you want to know the word of God by the leading of the Holy Spirit without of a lot of external influence. Very important, I think, in today's church. A lot of people don't agree with me on that, but a lot of people do. A lot of Christian leaders that I've talked to do. Let's look at Luke 6, 22 through 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil <clears throat> on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. George Mueller understood that. He understood that blessing. As did Paul. Peter was there when he preached it. See, they understood that. Test your perspective. Does this truth frighten you or does it joyfully inspire you? You really start understanding that you're maturing in Christ when you realize that it doesn't matter what people say about you or do to you as long as you're professing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now let me ask you this. How do these examples apply when we're hoping and praying that those closest and dearest to us are saved from condemnation and brought to salvation through the gospel? So many people, like I said, are striving to win family members to Christ. Like I said, in the area we live, so many families of Christians have been separated from their other family that's still trapped in the, in the heresy of Mormonism. So how do the examples that we've just learned, heard about, how do they apply when we're hoping and praying that those closest and dearest to us are saved from condemnation and brought to salvation through the gospel? We've got to understand what Jesus teaches us in Luke 12, 51 through 33, or 51 through 53. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The gospel will cause division in the closest of relationships unless it's compromised. We see this all the time. I've known people that have close friends that are in false religions and they maintain those friendships with the agreement that they will never discuss religion. 
if we discuss religion with these people, it will offend them and it could destroy the friendship. That is not a Christian biblical way to maintain a friendship. The friendship is not as important as the eternal state of their souls. We have got to strive to preach the gospel to everyone. You see? If you truly love that person, if you truly want to be friends with them, you will want to save them from what they're trapped in. 1 Peter 2, 7-8 through 8 says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ shines into the darkness and exposes sin, and in doing so, offends or convicts the sinner. This is one of the most important things Christians have got to understand. When you are sharing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is going to be offensive to sinners because they will not come to Christ unless they understand that their sin is what has separated them from God and put them into a state of condemnation. People don't want to see that. When you shine the light on that, it's offensive to them. You see? They want to run from it. They want to lash out. That's what those priests were doing when Christ preached or, or when uh, Stephen preached. Said they, they lashed out against him because he was exposing their sins and trespasses. They didn't want that brought to the light. It's still that way when you preach the unadulterated, uncompromised gospel of Jesus Christ. If the sinner is offended, it's a good thing. If they're not offended and they don't care, then you know the Holy Spirit is probably not doing anything in them, at least at that time. But if they lash out, how could you say that to me? You know you're probably getting somewhere. And really what it comes down to, if you're in Christ, this applied to all of us at one time before we were blessed to be brought to believe. I know it was my condition before I came to Christ. I thought when I got sober back in 92 that I had it all figured out, that my life was going to be great. I was spiritually mature. No, I was still lost. You see, I was in a false religion. I was in AA and the 12 steps. I was relying on you know, new age philosophy and psychology and all this other stuff instead of Christ. So I was lost. So I understand very well the teaching in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, where Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So right there you see the importance of offending the sinner with the gospel. But because if they're not understanding their lost sinful state and the fact that they are dead in sins and trespasses, in condemnation, headed for eternal separation from God and eternal suffering, separated from Christ and God, who is God, they won't be able to grasp this verse. You see, this verse gives us the contrast between our condition and being saved from our sinful condition in Jesus Christ. It's all because of God's mercy and because of his grace. This message can't get across if you neglect to preach the whole gospel, which includes the preaching of the condition of sin, total depravity, and the need to be reconciled to God which we cannot do on our own. By grace, we are saved. Let's look at Romans 8.28. Again, any believer looks back on this verse, and they look at the things of all the years of their life that brought them to Christ, and you realize that he was working every detail to bring him to his son. God is working every detail to bring us to his son. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If you've come out of addiction or alcoholism or anything like, like I came out of, when you're in that, you think, how can anything good ever come of this? 
But now I can look back and think, wow, praise the Lord. I would never be doing what I'm doing now if I hadn't been through what I went through then. He used all that according to his will and purpose. What, what, I, what I thought was evil, what I was creating for evil, God used it for good. You see? Praise the Lord for that. So Romans 8, 28, this applies to believers and to those who will be called to believe through the sharing of the gospel. He brings his elect through the sharing of the gospel, and he uses everything to bring us to the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And as we understand these truths, as we understand our role and the blessing that we have to serve the Lord, we'll be more willing to sacrifice our own good, our own comfort, and our own rights for the cause and for the joy of Jesus Christ. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he's saying, sacrifice yourself for the cause of the gospel. You don't do it by compulsion. If you're in Christ, you do it because it's what brings you joy. You don't worry about the things of this world so much. You don't worry about your own rights and your own needs as much as the cause of the gospel. You see? Our all-surpassing joy in Jesus Christ will far outweigh our concern for our pride and our rights. If you share the gospel and somebody attacks you and ridicules you and picks on you, you can just move right past that if you're really striving to proclaim the truth of the gospel because you don't care what people say. You just want to see that soul one for Christ. You just want to see the truth proclaimed, you see? So it changes that. And this is where it's so contrary to the world, the Christian perspective, because the world is what? Take, take care of number one. Always watch out for number one. Be competitive. Outperform the next guy. You don't care about this if you just want to see the gospel proclaimed in a powerful and awesome way. So our all-surpassing joy in Jesus Christ will far outweigh our concern for our pride and our and our rights, and we will seek to grasp what we read in Luke 15, 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So this is what's amazing in the fact that we are trusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, is when a sinner is brought to Christ and brought from being dead in sin through the proclamation of the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through God's word, there is a massive level of rejoicing in heaven over that. And that rejoicing goes on eternally. So we have just done something, been a part of something by God's grace and mercy that has eternal effect. Think of that. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What an awesome truth that is. And folks, we must have faith in God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit working through it. Understanding that we are commanded to go forth and share the gospel and raise up disciples. The Holy Spirit brings souls to believe through the word, not us. This is where you will maintain your energy and you will maintain your focus and you will not be worn down by the world if you understand that it is not your responsibility to save people. Your responsibility is just to be engaged in the cause of the gospel. And again, it's like I said, it's like when I go to Kenya, I'm engaged in the cause of the gospel. Those who help me go and those who support what I'm doing are just as engaged in it as I am. When my son goes with me and he records the videos and he takes the photos to help convey the message to the world of what we're trying to do there and what's being done there in the cause of the gospel, he is just engaged in it as I am. We just have different roles. Those who support us financially here are just as engaged in it as I am, just in a different role. You see? Everyone is engaged in it. But we've got to understand that the Holy Spirit brings lost souls to believe through the word, not us. And I'm going to give you a few verses to exemplify what I'm talking about. <laughs> Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, you do not return there, but water the earth, 
making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I propose and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Again, this is where people run into trouble trying to get people to recite a sinner's prayer or to make a decision for Christ because they want to feel like they shared the gospel, they got a response, and they want a soul to Christ. If you share the gospel and that person spits on you, ridicules you, punches you in the face, and walks away, you can still praise the Lord resting on Isaiah 55, 10, and 11, because it says whenever God's word goes forth, it will do what he sent it to do. It may be years down the road. That guy may go home and tell his roommate about this crazy Christian and all this crazy stuff that he told him, and that guy will come to Christ. You don't know what the purpose is. You see? You just don't know. I've seen this happen so many times in ministry. I'll give you an example. I had somebody contact me once who had heard me on, on the radio, and they were working at a, a rehab center. And this rehab center was claiming to be Christian, but they were totally focused on Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps. And he knew as a Christian he could not endorse those programs in what was supposed to be a Christian setting. So he wanted, he had gone to the leadership. They didn't care because they had they were making money. People were coming in, and it was easy to take them through the 12 steps. It's not easy to share the gospel. And he asked me, he said, I don't know what to do. I have a wife. I have a new baby. This is my only job. I told him it's a faith issue. You have to go and tell them if they do not eliminate AA and the 12 steps and start relying on the gospel of Jesus Christ because they claim to be Christian, you cannot be a part of it. And if you're fired because of it, the Lord will open another door for you. Two years later, this mission team comes to town. My friend asked me if I'll go talk to him. And this guy comes up to me and says, hey, do you remember like two years ago you talked to me about such and such? This guy had been led into missionary work with his wife, and they were training to go overseas to share the gospel. I would have never planned that. I had no idea something like that was going to happen. You see? But he had faith in doing what the Lord was leading him to do. He just needed somebody like me just to, just to give him a little bit more encouragement to say, just be faithful. The Lord will lead you in the right direction. That's how God works. His word did what it was supposed to do. You see? That's how we have to look at things. Let's look at the next verse. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, quite often, when you preach the doctrines of predestination and election, people were rejected and say, well, if that's the case, why do we bother sharing the gospel? If God's going to bring all his chosen ones to him anyway, we don't have to worry about it. No, he does it through hearing the word of Christ by preaching the gospel. If you go preach the gospel... When I go to Kenya, we're going to have our, our, our yearly uh, conference there. There'll be a massive amount of people there. They're not all saved. If I preach the gospel, the only ones that are going to respond are those that the Lord is going to open the ears of, those whose eyes he's going to open, those whose spirits are going to be opened to hear that gospel message. Those are the ones that will respond. I have no control over it. But my responsibility is to understand, and not just me, every Christian, our responsibility is to be the vessels of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how the word gets to the right ears. We don't know who they are. We just preach it. And then Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Where does Jesus ever teach? Go have somebody recite a sinner's prayer, make a decision to follow me, and then go preach the gospel to somebody else. No. And then you got a responsibility if they come to Christ, because what does it say? You have to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's true Christian church. You see, that's true Christian church.
Remember that we have been blessed with and we bring the most precious treasure there is, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never allow it to be tainted and demeaned by the world. So now I'm getting into how do we respond? What is our responsibility when you're preaching to people that just hate the gospel, reject the gospel, want nothing to do with it? I hate Christians. They're so intolerant. They're so uncompromising. You see? Shut up. I don't want to hear what you're preaching. There's got to be a place where we know that we draw a line there and say, okay, I can't go past this. I've done everything I can do. Very important to understand. This is another huge error in the modern church. Let's look at Mark 6.11 and Matthew 7.6. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. That's what they did during these times. It was like it, it was like saying, okay, fine, you don't want anything to do with me. I'm shaking off the dust of my feet. I have nothing to do with you. You're not my responsibility anymore. Matthew 7, 6, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So understand that during biblical times, dogs and pigs were considered ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. So you didn't give them things that were holy. Dogs were fed what was considered to be profane and unclean, the scraps. Nothing holy or consecrated for holy uses was given to them. Exodus 22:31 says, You shall be consecrated to me, therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw that to the dogs. But the command that I'm getting into here is yet another command of Scripture that is ignored by the majority of the contemporary church. Believers should not continue to share the gospel with people who have rejected it with contempt and scorn. Well, how should that be? Should I not just constantly just hound on somebody until they finally say a sinner's prayer and make a decision for Christ and become a believer? No, you don't have the power to do so. But what does that do? That starts tainting the gospel message if you treat it like that. You see, it starts making it cheap. That is not the way to present the gospel. Let's look at Matthew 10, 14 through 15. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Acts 13, 50 through 52. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So look at Paul follows the teaching that he had learned that Christ had laid down what to do when the message is rejected. He They wiped off their feet, but what does it say? They went to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They weren't stressing about the fact that the gospel was rejected in the previous place that threatened them. They just moved on and went to the next place. That is a Christian mindset that we've got to try to grasp. Acts 18, 5 through 6, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. It doesn't seem like a Christian perspective if you look at how the modern church treats the gospel. Does it? It seems foreign. To what we think the modern church should do. These men understood, revered, and respected the gospel of Jesus Christ. They knew it was the pearl of great price. They knew it was the greatest treasure they had and that mankind has. And they were not about to let those who hated it and rejected it and scorned it to spit on it and drag it through the mud. They shared the gospel to the best of their ability. They preached the gospel without compromise. And they, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, we implore you, be reconciled to God. You're going to die in your sins and trespasses and be in eternal condemnation if you don't place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if people still continue to scorn them, they wiped off the dust from their feet and they joyfully went to the next town. That is how 
You deal with those that reject the gospel. You do the best you can. You move on to the next town. Then what do you do? You pray for them. But you don't let the gospel be drugged through the mud. You understand, you revere, and you respect the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not drag it through the mud or allow it to be diluted by this world and the contemporary church in an effort to pitch it to the dogs and pigs who continually scorn it and despise it. It is the word of God. It is precious and it is holy. There is no other truth. Acts 4.12 Paul says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Revere and love and respect the name of Jesus Christ and his gospel, and do not let anybody abuse it. Now, here's the beautiful Christian paradox in this whole message. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's what I just talked about. Those that reject it. Yeah, you wipe off the dust of your feet. Your blood's on your own head. I shared the gospel with you. You can continue to pray for those people because what did we learn earlier? God's word never returns void. You see? You might preach, you might preach to 100 people and they they, trace you, they chase you out of town with pickforks, but you don't know what that word's going to do later on. You don't know what response it's going to have later. You see? You just don't know. Think of all the people that Jesus uh, came across in his ministry. Think of all those that turned back when he preached the gospel because they didn't like the message, who probably came to faith after they witnessed what happened in Jerusalem shortly after that. When he was put on trial, which was a sham, he was tortured, he was crucified, he died, then he rose on the third day, then he ascended. How many of those then started remembering the things that they had witnessed, the things that they had heard, and then came to Christ? See, we just don't know when God's going to use his word. We don't know how he's going to use his word. But if we don't have faith that he's going to use his word, and we think it's something we have to make effective, we will drive ourselves crazy, and we will become defeated in ministry, and we will not be fruitful. God makes his word powerful. Our battle may may be engaging in prayer and living as Christ before those who who we seek to reach. Sometimes the only thing you can do is pray, but it's the most powerful thing. And it's never the last thing. You pray before you go preach the gospel, while you're preaching the gospel, and after you preach the gospel. The gospel should be shared shared as taught and commanded in God's word. It is perfect and complete and will succeed in the work for which the Lord sends it. There is never any biblical justification for changing the gospel or the presentation of it in any way in order to conform more comfortably to the world or the modern church. Preach the gospel as it's conveyed in God's word. Never change it. Preach the gospel from the word. I'm going to close with Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we are able to Hear the gospel message. And Lord, I pray that those that have been, uh, that have come to you and placed their faith and their trust in you because you have given us new hearts, you've uh, brought our spirits a lot into life and into your light from the death that we are trapped in in our sins. I just praise you for that. And for anyone that might hear this and they don't understand what I'm talking about and they're feeling that their sins still have them trapped, Lord, I pray that they would that you would shine the light of your truth into their hearts and that they would be brought to belief and faith and trust in you and that they would strive to know you and to be conformed to your image and to understand what it is to live in the hope of the glory that we that we are promised in Jesus Christ eternally. Lord, as we come into the coming week, I just ask that you would open doors of opportunity for the gospel for everyone that's listening today and everyone that will hear this message. And that you would bless us with a power beyond our natural abilities to proclaim the gospel boldly and powerfully and confidently. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, and God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.